Hello and welcome back to the Joint Venture Podcast, Inspiratia Insights, bringing you the latest of Inspiratia's coverage. My name is Oliver Carr and this week I am surrounded by journalists. We have two of our regular contributors, Zachary Skidmore, senior reporter. Hello. And we also have Robert Leeming, head of news. Hi Oliver. Zach is going to take us through some of the latest developments. Rob is going to take us through one of the biggest deals of the last week when Zenobi secured debt financing for its uh, battery storage plant in Scotland. And I'll also be taking a look at what's been happening with hydrogen legislation in the EU. There's been some big breakthroughs in the past few weeks with regards to auctions and standards. But as always, we start with the news and Zach, you're going to take us through that. Yeah, sure. So wind really, really was the headliner this week. Um, the first story I'd like to pinpoint is um, one between BP and Deep Wind Offshore, which announced a joint venture to develop offshore wind opportunities in South Korea. BP acquired 55% stake in Deep Wind Offshore's early stage wind portfolio, which included four projects across the Korean peninsula with a potential generating capacity of up to 60 gigawatts. Um, the four projects are of a mix of fixed bottom offshore wind and floating turbines and it actually marks the first entry of BP into the South Korean offshore market. So Zach, for our listeners who may not be familiar, could you give us a little bit of detail about the South Korean market? So it's actually expected to become one of the leading offshore wind markets in the world. So after years of lagging investment, they signed a green new deal and committed to 20% renewal generation by 2030, with 12 gigawatts of that provided through offshore wind projects. Following that, offshore wind companies and oil majors looking to move into the floating offshore wind market targeted South Korea as a potential hotbed. The other major companies who have also made the leap into the Korean market include GIG and Total, who in August 2021 were provided an electricity business license for 1.5 gigawatts of floating wind, which was located off the coast of Ulsan, with construction expected to start in 2024. Additionally, in September 2021, Shell signed a joint venture to develop and operate 1.4 gigawatts of floating offshore wind off the southeast coast of South Korea. So the South Korean market is quite interesting. Similar to Taiwan, as we were discussing last week, it does have issues of a geopolitical nature. Additionally, it has challenges including complicated regulations and a lengthy and unreliable permitting process. This could hinder rapid cost reduction, which is made even more challenging in the face of supply chain and grid uncertainties. We were certainly talking about a similar situation last week when we were covering Taiwan and we were uh, covering uh, Jira's withdrawal from a uh, offshore partnership. And I think there's been some more information on that story in the last week. Yeah, so last week we reported on Jira's withdrawal from the Formosa Free Offshore Wind Farm, which is in the Taiwanese Strait. That ironically, the next day there was a report that a joint venture had been struck between Total Energies and Corio Generation, the original partner, to develop the aforementioned wind farm. The partnership is actually a continuation of a long relationship between the two companies. So other projects developed by these two companies include the West Orkney Wind Farm in Scotland, the Outer Downsing offshore wind project in England, and over two gigawatts of floating wind projects in South Korea. So the deal is building on an already established partnership and reinforces European companies' focus on East Asia as a potential booming floating offshore wind market. Well, thank you for setting the record straight on that one, uh, Zach. What else has been going on? So we had another floating wind deal. So Ferovial 
is set to team up with RWE, and the two companies have signed a memorandum of understanding to explore, develop, build, and manage 1.8 gigawatts of floating capacity. And this is going to be off the coast of Spain, specifically Lugo, Pontevedra, Girona, and Gran Canaria. The two companies have worked on floating wind before on the DemoSaf test floating offshore scheme. So even more floating offshore wind, and this time in Spain. Um, what's been going on in the Spanish market? So Spain has actually laid out a roadmap to becoming the leading European market for floating offshore wind. It set a target of three gigawatts of floating offshore wind capacity by 2030. And the National Marine Spatial Plan has actually indicated a potential capacity of more than 20 gigawatts of floating offshore wind capacity. So the Spanish market seems primed to really exploit its um, geographical location which the Spanish government has actually agreed on, with floating wind seen as the preferred technology for the offshore wind market within the country. Ferroval has already submitted expressions of interest for four wind farms in the country and has an installed capacity of 1.75 gigawatts. Generally, these investments indicate a growing interest within the floating wind market. The sector has grown significantly since the world's first commercial floating offshore wind farm, High Wind Scotland, which was commissioned in 2017. And given that 80% of the world's offshore wind potential lies in waters at depths of 60 metres and above, floating wind's potential far outstrips current offshore capacity. Subsequently, GWEC Market Intelligence has upgraded its global floating wind forecast and predicts that 18.9 gigawatts is likely to be built globally by 2030, of which 11 gigawatts will be in Europe, 5.5 gigawatts in Asia and the rest in North America. Despite this, there will be several challenges. Port requirements are significantly different with floating platforms needing additional space for fabrication and storage, as well as new anchor and mooring fabrication and marshalling requirements. Additionally, floating offshore wind projects will need to be able to demonstrate rapid cost reduction, which is made even more challenging in the face of wider cost pressures across the market. Actually, in a um, Q&A um, that I conducted with RWE's floating wind arm and their head of development, Chris Willow, it was stressed that floating wind isn't a revolutionary idea and the infrastructure already developed within the fixed bed offshore wind market will greatly support the upscaling of the industry. Thank you, Zach. Uh, anything else before we wrap up? Okay, there's one more story I'd like to pinpoint. It was an announcement made by BP, who announced plans to invest $1 billion by 2030 into electric vehicle charge points across the United States. So the investment includes a partnership with Hertz, who announced an intention to bring fast-charging infrastructure to locations they have already developed in major cities such as Atlanta, Austin, Boston, and Chicago, among many more in the United States. EV charging actually constitutes one of BP's five strategic transition growth engines in which the company expects to significantly grow its investment through the decade. Thank you very much, Zach. Next, as promised, we're going to talk about Zenobi's debt financing deal, which was completed in the last week. And Rob has the scoop for us on this. Yes, thanks, Oliver. Big deal uh, to talk about this week. The London-based battery storage developer Zenobi announced last week that he had won a multi-million pound pot of debt financing from five banks to fund one gigawatt of new battery storage capacity in Scotland. The banks in question were Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, Rainbow Bank, Santander UK, Siemens Financial Services and NatWest. 
As a result of the agreement, Zenorbi will receive 235 million as well as a 400 million accordion facility. Okay, so we covered, you know, debt financing deals and renewables all the time. Why is this one, why does this one stand out? Well, the deal was of considerable significance because it was one of the largest financings to be arranged in the European battery sector to date, a sector that has had to fight to win the confidence of investors. Investor concerns have largely been prompted by fears of a merchant risk in the sector, and in the past, the lack of the safe harbour offered by government contracts. Instead, the battery storage space has largely developed without large-scale subsidy and is succeeding regardless to stand tall without crutches, a fact that has surely acted to settle investor concerns. So how was Zenobi able to buck the trend in this case? Yes, well, it's all about geography. Well, um, first of all, it's locating its, its battery projects wisely, close to locations where new storage capacity is required. The projects that will be funded by this deal are being sited close to substations and locations where interconnectors will ultimately come on shore from the many offshore wind projects that are being developed off Scotland. The schemes in the deal include the 200 megawatt Ballyhot project near Elgin in Scotland, where construction has already started, and a 400 megawatt scheme near Inverness, which are both due to be complete before the end of 2024. A further 20 megawatt site is also being developed close to Kilmarnock near Glasgow. The merchant element of Zenobi's project is around 60%, but because the projects have been sited at locations where there are stresses on the grid system, or there might be stresses in the future when offshore wind projects come, come online, the ability for the company to provide further merchant services is much enhanced by the location, which in this case has helped the company get much better debt terms because of the degree of contracted revenues they have. The new projects will also be contracted to provide stability services to the National Grid Electricity System operator to improve grid reliability, a deal which Zenobi claims involves the first commercial contracts in the world to use transmission-connected batteries to provide short-circuit level and inertia to the grid to support the removal of fossil fuel plants from the UK energy mix. Basically, the new batteries will act to ease network constraints faced by the national grid during periods of heavy usage by importing electricity at times of peak renewable generation. So, it sounds like this project is really pushing some boundaries with such a high merchant proportion, particularly for a debt finance project. Do you think there are likely to be more deals like this? Is this going to lead the way for other projects? Well, the short answer is yes. The truth is that debt financings have been becoming more common recently. For example, in the summer of last year, UK-based storage developer Field secured £46 million in debt financing from Triple Point, an innovative deal that was rightly honoured at last year's Inspiratia Energy and Sustainability Awards. Remember that round of applause. I know. <laughs> the money is being used by Field to finance the construction of four battery storage projects, this time in England, as well as some smaller ones in Scotland and Wales, with the capacity due to come online before the end of this year. Other significant deals last year included Harmony Energy Income Trust winning, winning a £60 million financing facility from NatWest to back the acquisition and construction of a 99 megawatt battery storage scheme in Buckinghamshire. And Santander also made an investment in the French company R Green Invest, which is supporting the construction of 107 megawatts of battery energy storage capacity across England. So, to answer your question, there will certainly be many more battery financings on the horizon very soon, and possibly even some that smash a few more records. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for asking me, Oliver. 
We are going to finish off today by talking a little bit more about hydrogen in the European Union, one of my favourite subjects, and somewhere where there's been a lot of developments over the past few weeks. So we thought it was worth taking a closer look. I wrote an article on this for the Inspiration website just this week, so go there to see full details. But the headline is, the EU is going to be putting 800 million euros into the pilot of its hydrogen funding scheme. It has also been publishing some standards, rules, regulations, as the EU does love doing, only this time around the definition of green hydrogen, which has been something we've been waiting for for a long time. So, Oliver, what is the context for these changes? Why now? This has largely been seen as a response to subsidy support from the US. We've talked about the Inflation Reduction Act many times on this podcast in relation to a lot of different areas of renewables. And in hydrogen, the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States has um, really put a lot of investor focus on that market for offering tax credits that could be worth up to 30% of investments made in green hydrogen production, plus an extra variable subsidy based on the amount of hydrogen produced up to $3 per kilogram, which would make green hydrogen production incredibly competitive with traditional fuel production. So the EU has been concerned about this level of uh, government support in the US. We saw the first stirrings of this just before the new year, when Ursula von der Leyen in particular came out and uh, made a few statements about it. We covered it at the time, saying how this was a rather aggressive move and protectionist move from the US and that the EU would respond. And I believe at the time I made a prediction there'd be some big EU spending on energy projects. And you know what? I think I'm going to call myself right because what the announcements on the hydrogen auctions would really seem to sort of come up to that level. So what they actually announced, the EU Innovation Fund, uh, which is a big pot of money that the EU has dedicated to its uh, green policies, has committed this 800 million euros towards the scheme. And we've done some analysis on this. And we estimate that if this money is spent entirely on price support along a similar lines to the US market, that could translate into 25 million tonnes of green hydrogen production per year which are being supported directly by EU subsidy. What do we know about the auction process so far? So, unfortunately, we are lacking in details of the auction process per se. We do know about the level of support and we know there are going to be further consultations with the industry. We are expecting details in June of this year for the final design of the process before the pilot auctions will take place this autumn. However, there are good reasons to believe that the auction process will be at least somewhat similar to the CFD, Contracts for Difference, style auction systems, which uh, many EU countries and elsewhere use for determining the government uh, support for renewable projects. This would particularly line up well for the EU as it would allow a more dynamic way of supporting green hydrogen projects than perhaps the IRA does, as that is a flat amount which would not vary uh, depending on the project. So making these projects bid for the pot would probably result in a more equitable use of the subsidy. Uh, The other big thing that came out last week was the EU's definitions on green fuels. Under the new rules, to be considered fully renewable, evidence must be provided by fuel producers to demonstrate that the electricity was, one, either produced on-site or by a direct line connection to a renewable asset, which is kind of the standard, what most people would think of as green hydrogen production. You've got some direct connection between a windmill and an electrolyzer. That's the simple case. That's green hydrogen. They've also added some 
Other restrictions around this, including a requirement for the asset not to have been operating for more than three years before it was used to produce fuel. Uh, this is to stop the cannibalization of existing renewable production for uh, generating fuels, because the idea is to provide additionality and that ideally every new hydrogen production facility would be joined with a new renewable asset. However, there was also provision to take electricity directly from a grid system. So, for example, there is a rule that if a grid has more than 90% renewable input in the previous calendar year, then you can draw electricity from that grid to produce green hydrogen, so long as you do not exceed the number of hours of the year that proportionally were not renewable. So, for example, if you have a 95% renewable grid, then you can run your hydrogen project for 95% of the year and call it renewable, which is a much more flexible approach than I think many of us were expecting from these regulations. Also, there's another slight adjustment on this. So, if there is a grid where the carbon intensity is lower than 18 grams of CO2 equivalent per megajoule, that will also be available for classification as a green fuel, provided that the uh, fuel producer tops up their green credentials by buying renewable PPAs. So this is particularly important for France. The French market is uh, very heavily dependent on nuclear, which is not a renewable but does have a very low carbon intensity. So the thinking here is that even nuclear can be used to produce green fuels. So, Oliver, do the new rules for green fuels fit with expectations, and were there any surprises? So, the provision for low-carbon intensity electricity to be used for green hydrogen does somewhat buck the trend of what would be kind of traditionally considered green. As I say, the uh, definitions for these things before have been quite vague, but uh, there is a very strong strain of thought that if you haven't used renewable energy, then you cannot call your fuel green. And these rules do go against that for uh, mainly political reasons so that French projects can use that nuclear energy. And I say that was a bit of a surprise. There's also been a lot of criticism on these rules that they are a little bit too generous when it comes to the temporal alignment, as they say. So when the energy was produced versus when it was used. And the provision is that these PPAs to make renewable hydrogen must be taken from the same grid system within the same calendar month which is a very generous window for uh, production, considering that a renewable asset could just be dumping energy into the grid and that doesn't necessarily have to align with the usage of the fuel production. So let's come under criticism for that. Uh, this is only the short-term solution, according to the European Commission. This is going to be uh, tightened up to be an hour-by-hour system by 2030. But for the time being, those month-long windows leave a lot of room for potential greenwashing of hydrogen projects. So where does the EU now stand compared with the UK? So the EU has really taken the initiative here. and I think that it kind of shows, particularly when you look at the policy of the last few weeks and months, we've been talking nonstop almost about the IRA in the US market. And We've also done plenty of reporting of delays in the UK market when it comes to renewable policy, particularly hydrogen. We were talking about the hydrogen business model not long ago, which was meant to be finalised in Q1 of this year, which has now been pushed back to autumn, which is also when this first um, EU hydrogen auction is meant to happen. And I think it just shows uh, the UK in quite poor light if by the time they actually work out what the mechanisms of these auctions is, then the EU is already conducting some. So I hope that this spurs more action there. But it certainly feels like the EU and the US are willing to fight over becoming leaders in green hydrogen. The EU has a bit of an advantage already. Uh, 
having built up a substantial number of projects, over 60% of the hydrogen projects we've been tracking this year so far are within the EU. So they've got some real uh, headway there. But they've got competition from the US, and I'm really hoping that this spurs on some UK action from the policy side. So I guess it's natural to try and make a Brexit comment, isn't it, given that um, the European Union and, and, and uh, the United States seem to be advancing and getting ready to do battle, where the, the UK sounds rather like it's being left behind both of them. You might say that. I couldn't possibly comment, Rob. I will say it. <laughs> very well. Um, I think that's enough for this week. Thank you very much, Rob and Zach, for coming on once again. We appreciate your news every week, and you're both here together for me to thank you this time. For more details on all the stories we've covered here today, go to the Inspiratio website, where you can find full analysis and news stories. Thank you very much for listening. Feedback is always welcome at podcasts at inspiratia.com. We will see you again next week. In the meantime, thank you very much, Rob. Thanks, Oliver. And thanks, Zach. See ya. Goodbye.